Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People Gift Card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem in any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Sasha Kutubar Sarago is a Wajinbara, Yidinji, Jiribal, and African American woman. Sasha is a former model and founder of Ascension, Australia's first digital lifestyle platform for women of colour. Sasha has appeared on NITV, SBS, and ABC TV, and has written and directed the documentaries Too Pretty to Be Aboriginal and Inside Out. Today I'm talking to Sasha Kutubar Sarago about her new book, Jigaru. Sasha, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you for having me. The pursuit of beauty can be empowering, but for black women, also confusing and confounding, particularly in the context of Western beauty standards. Jigaroo is the title of your book and a jibbal word meaning beauty or beautiful, but definitions are always complex and elusive things. What should we understand about the Indigenous concept of beauty? I think it allows us to take control of that narrative and redefine it in the way that is authentic for us. Uh, Indigenous wisdom, knowledge, culture, I really feel is grounded in that. Um, It's really a philosophy of listening to spirit. It really questions you along your journey of, am I in the right direction? And when it comes to beauty, I think I can only speak for myself, but I'm sure other people have experienced that it's being dictated to us and it makes us feel other than or that we don't fit into this box or this framework, which is very damaging. But I think if you take control over it and you find the beauty within yourself and who you are, that's where the authenticity comes and that's when it really speaks to you. So I'm challenging the paradigm of Western beauty and saying, is it working for us? What conversations are we having with our younger generation? And how do we feel about ourselves when it comes to beauty? Is it positive? Is it empowering? And I just share it through my story that I found my power and my juguru, which means beauty in the Jiribu language, which is my, my grandmother's language. I found that juguru in my culture the stories of my matriarchs and really claiming the matriarchal lineage that has given me the freedom to explore what that Jaguru is. And in Indigenous culture, I find that in the landscape, in our creation stories, in our interconnectedness with each other as a community, as opposed to how we operate in a Western framework where it's really aesthetic predominantly and it's about trends and you know, what you are and what you aren't at any any given time, which um, is very damaging. Your story begins naturally with your childhood and uh, part of your childhood was growing up in America. I came from a culture of clean, bright sneakers and bleached white socks. But when you found yourself back in Innisfail, you noticed that nobody wore shoes. Uh, You also write of your feet being released from their armour. Yes, it was a a wonderful experience of coming from living in a concrete jungle where I didn't have a concept of being connected to country um, in my Indigenous culture. It was living in my father's world, um, African-American culture, where it was very um, hustle and grind. 
it was uh, more consumerism, uh, keeping up with the Joneses type lifestyle. And to come from that flurry to a very simplistic small town, uh, extended family that I've met for the first time and watching my cousins with the freedom of running around playing Tiggy with no shoes on. And that was mind blowing because, you know, I just didn't understand why would you run around with no sneakers on because it's all about, you know, appearances. But the freedom of just being a child and, you know, we call it grounding in the here and now, but it's something that in Indigenous culture, to feel your country, to be on your traditional country where your ancestors have walked you know, for thousands and thousands of years, to experience that as a child and finally you know, feel that I am free, I am able to just be who I am. That was a magical moment and it's hard to describe and I, and I really liken it to people who you know, have a place that they go away and they holiday and they just can just be one with themselves and, and nature. And it really was that, that I had never connected to the outside world, you know, the beauty of the landscape. It was all, you know, skyscrapers, you know, cars, smog, that type of living to just the serenity of being on country, being around family and no expectations, just living your introduction to the beauty industry was through your mother's salon, Majal, and this is where you discovered something foundational. Not every face is the same. Every skin is unique. Absolutely. And it really rings true in a lot of pathways of life is that we are not all the same. And that, that simply is the beauty of it. We are working towards trying to enhance and celebrate one's beauty that is different from the next client that comes into the salon and that just reverberates in everything in life. But we don't find that. We find that sometimes we're in a cookie cutter uh, type world where you're shunned for not being like everybody else or fitting an ideal. So that really made me look at the person, who they were and how they wanted to feel, I think that was the most important thing about that experience is that I was introduced to a diversity of women from different shapes, sizes, tones, and their character as well. And, and so beauty really was the platform for me to understand diversity and celebrate that. So the beauty salon or the idea of beauty led you to a career in modelling. Where and when did your modelling career begin? My inspiration to enter into the modeling industry was partly working with my mother in the salon, but it actually goes back when I was about nine years old. And that's when I was living in the US. And so it was really the time of what we call a black cultural renaissance. And it was the influx of black creatives that were dominating the entertainment industry. TV, music it was rap and hip hop the rise of it and I remember seeing black supermodels like Naomi Campbell, Tyra Banks, uh, Veronica Webb on the catwalk and I knew from that moment of seeing these beautiful black glamazons dominating an industry that was predominantly Eurocentric. It just blew my mind and it planted the seeds that you know, I too wanted to be a black supermodel and combined with being introduced to the world of beauty through my mother, it just resonated with me. And that's how I fell into 
modeling. But you found that the pursuit of fame doesn't heal the black girl syndrome. That is an inside job. What do you mean by that? I found that I was trying to validate who I was through an industry where I thought if I had fame, if I had the spotlight on me, that I would be accepted or I would find my value in that industry, the value of being beautiful or perceived as beautiful. And it does not cure the wounds that we have or we conceal and we hide. And we try to elevate ourselves or achieve constantly to obtain this goal of what we think is going to validate us to everybody. And really, it's the insecurities that we hold. And sometimes no one else knows about these insecurities. And so it's a rude awakening to feel like every time I achieve this, I get a magazine spread or I'm on the runway, I'm still feeling empty. There is still a void there. And no matter how much that I move forward in my career or try to obtain the next big thing, it's it's not it's not fixing anything. I'm still stuck with myself. And that's what I meant with it's an inside job of nothing. It's not a Band-Aid. Modeling is not a Band-Aid. You're building your career and being, you know, the most successful business owner under 30 is not going to fix the wounds that we haven't nursed or we haven't addressed. And so it, it really is an inside job of we need to take the time to do the work and find the source of it instead of masking it, whether it's, you know, hiding behind a career, avoiding deep, meaningful relationships because there's a fear or there's some kind of thing that's holding us back, but we don't want to address it. We need to consult and be real about what's going on with me and how do I fix this on my terms. Sometimes we're not fortunate enough to have our ancestors' voices or our intuition um, you know, talk to us really loudly and we make certain decisions. And then we realize, okay, that wasn't the best choice. So I, I think I got lucky where I had a sense of I was tuned into my spirit. And, and that's why I say it's really important that that's the one thing that is tuned in and designed specifically for us. Our intuition is going to be different from the next person because it's a compass and it guides us to where we need to be and will never fail us. But the, the weird thing about it is that most of the time, sometimes we don't listen to it the majority of times. And why is that? And we have to question that. Um, so I was very lucky that I made decisions based on a higher power or you know, a higher, a higher voice that was looking after me and making and helping me to make the right decisions. In Jigaru, you introduce a mix of Aboriginal stories uh, into the memoir, along with family stories, of course. Old Man Birgil, the beautiful young Brolga, Barangaroo, Ye, the goddess of light and creation. The one that sticks out for me is Barangaroo. Uh, we now may be more familiar with Barangaroo as the site of Packers Pekka. Now, I'm interested in the real Barangaroo. Tell me about her. I discovered this wonderful story of a beautiful ancestor named Barangaroo and it was when I moved to Sydney and I was living around the Balmain area and I would ferry from Balmain to Barangaroo and Manly back and forth and her name or the word stood out for me. I didn't know who it was at the time. I asked around and no one really knew so I did a you know, Google search but even prior to that I felt this strong pull or this, uh, this I don't know, it was a feeling of strength every time I would sit in that area 
And I had a lot of business uh, meetings in the Barangaroo precinct. So predominantly it's um, a, a lot of restaurants and it was um, you know, a hub of commerce. And I remember feeling so uh, at peace in this area with all this hustle and bustle going on. And I did my research and I found out this is Hamaregal woman and the dynamics of the Eora women, they predominantly were the food providers for their tribe and they would go out on the waters um, and fish for their clan. But the cultural leadership that they had within the tribe, and we talk today about, you know, gender relations and, you know, lack of equality and equity, they had that within their uh, the clan group and their cultural system and knowledge. And she foresaw the implications or the, the damage that colonization uh, would put upon you know, their clan and her husband, her second husband was Benelong. She was um, a little bit more um, older in age than him and she could see the changes that were affecting her culture and her people. And so, of course, you know, she would scrapple with Benelong a bit um, in, um, in the decisions that he made or what she felt was going to really jeopardize their culture in the long run. And so what I love about her is she stood in her truth and she didn't hold back and she had a generosity and a compassion about her. And I talk about her you know, going to government house, being invited um, into this lavish place. And she stood firm and she said, you know, with her actions that I'm not going to conform to colonial attire. I'm going to show up with a bone in my nose, um, with Oka. And this is who I am. Take me as I am. And, you know, there was a pl- public flogging that was uh, happening. And, you know, she, she stood up for this, this poor man uh, that was being chastised and in front of uh, a group of people, the compassion of that circumstance. But more importantly, you know, her seeing that the cultural leadership that the women, the your women had, would be threatened, standing up for her people and the ways of living and being. So she was... Um, a force to be reckoned with and you know these are the stories that we don't readily hear and when you discover them you're just amazed at the beauty of that the beauty and strength within that and so that's what I draw upon those stories of different creation stories or ancestors who had a strength about them a discernment they had wisdom and you know it really goes back to wisdom is jugudu wisdom is beautiful and in a day an age where ageism is an issue and we are demonized for not being young and youthful, in replace of that, we have a knowledge base that no one can take from us. That is a gem in itself of having life experience and wisdom to be passed on. And I suppose much of that over the last 200 years or so has been interrupted. And one thing that keeps coming up in your book is this idea of shame, uh, shame for Black women, Indigenous women. And you explored that uh, concept through the documentary Too Pretty to be Aboriginal, uh, particularly in this idea of black velvet. To find out what black velvet meant, uh, it was deeply concerning, to say the least. But it's confronting this secret you know, that hasn't really been talked about, but is known to Aboriginal women and the women that have come before us. But it happened you know, on the frontiers uh, during colonization. And it, it's still happening uh, in, in certain ways, but it's very stealth in, in, in ways. 
But for me, being told what Black Velvet meant and seeing that happen within my family of the sexual exploitation of Aboriginal women in, in different shapes and forms and trying to understand that, okay, the way that I'm looked at as a Black woman is, is very different um, from non-Black women. And to question that, why is that? But also, too, the damaging effects that it had on my own ways of looking at my beauty, uh, my femininity. I felt less than or I felt dirty. Uh, it felt like I had a stain on me that I just couldn't get rid of. And so in the documentary, you know, through the statement, this very sexist and racist statement, you're too pretty to be Aboriginal. I question and interrogate that. But I do that in a sense of having conversations with other Aboriginal women who have been assaulted with this deeply disturbing statement to question what convicts a stranger to come up to an Aboriginal woman and question her cultural heritage and then offer a statement. You're too pretty to be Aboriginal. What does that mean? And when you go back, it does go back to where it all started, you know, through the the colonial tropes like black velvet, gin and lubra, and, you know, sexually um, demonizing Aboriginal women. And you see it come in, coming through different, you know, literature, uh, songs that were written by colonists. And, you know, even in, the, I think it was the first film that was shot in color and it was Jeddah, um, the term gin in, in, in lubra and in, in that film. So there's been this deep reckoning of why is that? Um, it needs to be discussed. And I wanted to have the authority or to give Aboriginal women an opportunity to take control of that narrative and express that this is a deeply disturbing statement and we need to confront it or we need to take the power back and redefine our beauty and establish that we are Djibouti. We're a beautiful nation of Aboriginal women and our culture reflects that and we personify that through our culture. You are also the founder and editor of Ascension online lifestyle magazine. It began with a powerfully worded manifesto. What was your objective then and how has that been reflected in the material you produce for the magazine now? The epiphany that I had to start the magazine Ascension, even the naming of it, I was going through a spiritual journey. I was really questioning the way that I was living, what my purpose was. And, you know, it was named after uh, a meditation workshop that I had attended. It was an Ascension workshop. And that really set the tone because I wanted the women who, you know, are deemed disadvantaged in their communities, women of colour, uh, who were not celebrated or seen in mainstream Australian women's magazines, to be celebrated, uh, to be uplifted and empowered. And I thought that was a beautiful name, Ascension, to always you know, rise to, it, to the occasion. And, you know, for me, writing the manifesto, it really embodied, you know, what I wanted women and on all walks of women to do was to listen to their spirit. And, and for me, it was, that's where I was, I guess, the, the first steps of embracing my Djibouti was going back to my culture, the beauty of that, reclaiming my identity and finding the strength and beauty within that culture. There's so many women who call Australia home. They come from different homelands and it's not predominantly the, the mainstream you know, Australian culture that you, you see. But how do they celebrate and see that reflected? And I was inspired because I didn't see any magazines that reflected who I am. 
I'm a First Nations woman with African-American heritage. I also have Malay and Mauritian um, ancestry as well. And, and so I wanted something that would reflect, um, you know, literally nearly half of the population of women of color, of ethnic background, and that they could celebrate, you know, their, their hair being curly, their skin being different uh, skin tones and, you know, breaking through the, the negative stereotypes that some of these women in communities were affected by, but also to talk about the issues that weren't being colored, I'm sorry, colored, <laughs> covered by the, the mainstream, like colorism, you know, the skin bleaching um, issues and statements like too pretty to be Aboriginal and, you know, don't touch my hair, you know, and then embracing the natural hair movement and all these things that sometimes is so foreign to other people, but speaks volumes to someone. And, you know, it's really important that we have a diversity of conversations when it comes to women and it comes to beauty and it comes to lifestyle. So that was the inspiration of, I was going on my own personal journey and I wanted to bring other women and peers who were affected by these issues um, along the way and to be empowered and, and to really redefine, you know, what beauty and who we are on our terms. Tasha, it's been wonderful to talk to you. And thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you, Greg. It's been a pleasure. I've been talking to Sasha Kutaba Sarago about her new book, Jigaroo. It's published by Pantera Press, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.